This podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Buck Down Canada. Buck Down provides the community with high quality threads. I personally enjoy their clothing's perfect fit and grassroots bow hunting designs. Go check out their online shop at www.buckdowncanada.ca where you can find Richardson Trucker snapback hats, perfect for everyday use and even better for hunting. There you can also take advantage of the hoodie and t-shirt bundles. When purchasing at least three hoodies or three t-shirts, you instantly save at the checkout. With zero shipping costs, when it comes to hoodies and t-shirts, there is no better deal. Also be sure to check out their incredible array of designs and stay up to date on Facebook and Instagram at Buck Down Canada. This episode is sponsored by Grizz Targets and Archery. Hands down the best targets made right here in Alberta. I'm very thankful to have partnered with some amazing guys putting out high quality products. Their targets range in all sizes from the backpacker, which is their most portable target, great for checking your sights to make sure your arrow flies true when you're in the backcountry. This thinner 12 by 12 target can double as a seat or a flat surface when cooking. Say you want to have some fun testing your skills at long distances? The Kodiak, on the other side of the spectrum, boasts a massive 48 inch by 48 inch surface to assure you that you won't be digging in the grass for arrows when you're shooting past 100 yards. They have targets for both field points and broadheads, with interchangeable cells to keep you from breaking the bank when the bullseye gets blown out. You want a target that's as tough as you? Get Grizzly Tough with Grizz Targets and Archery. Be sure to check them out at grizztargetsarchery.ca. This episode is sponsored by Slayer Calls. Bill Ayer, CEO and founder of Slayer, puts immense workmanship and quality control into every one of his calls. Not one of his products makes it into your hands without first meeting his high standards. Slayer currently makes calls for waterfowl, elk, and turkey. Their double reed duck calls boast superior craftsmanship and award-winning performance with wildly loud sound. They have a full range of elk reeds, custom bugle tubes, and in my opinion, the best push-button elk call on the market known as the Enchantress. This push-button call allows you to get a variety of noises from great cow sounds to estrus buzzes and big location bugles when paired with the swagger tube. Slayer makes many other products from goose calls and turkey reeds to lanyards, bags, and gear. They even have an online course to get you calling like a pro. Check out Slayer Calls at slayercalls.com and call the wild. This episode is sponsored by CND Archery. CND is Alberta owned and operated, offering two pro shops in Rosalind and Maleg. Owners Corey and Doug have more than 25 years of combined knowledge and experience to get you set up properly and to maintain your gear for years to come. CND Archery is Canada's only distributor of expedition bows. They carry tons of great gear that you won't find anywhere else. Corey and Doug support local by carrying many Alberta made products from arrows to accessories. Get in touch with the guys on Facebook or Instagram today at CND Archery and set up your visit. This episode of Alberta Wildlife Stories is sponsored by Precision Edge Taxidermy. Owner and operator Hunter Friesen from Stetler, Alberta puts outstanding craftsmanship into every mount to turn your most memorable stories into conversation pieces for your home. Precision Edge does everything from Euro mounts to anything big game along with waterfowl, small game and everything in between. Next time you connect with a trophy, connect with Hunter at Precision Edge Taxidermy. Find his stunning array of work on display on Instagram and Facebook at Precision Edge Taxidermy and contact him today. Welcome to Alberta Wildlife Stories. Joining me today 
is Eric Wolstenholm-Schmidt from Paleo, Alberta. As a paleontologist, Eric takes part in another form of hunting that involves digging up puzzle pieces of our past to paint a picture of how we came to be and what was before us. Alberta is a landmark destination in the paleo world, and I can't wait to learn more about Eric's recent finds and the community here in Alberta. Eric, thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Thanks for having me, man. Uh, that intro is pretty awesome. Holy, that's really <laughs> cool. Um, oh, for sure, man. It's such a cool thing that you're a part of. And, uh, you know, it's it's really intriguing because when you and I first kind of started talking, you mentioned that Alberta's world class. And I mean, everybody knows like Drumheller and, you know, but. Yep. Yeah. No, uh, there's no better place on planet Earth. That's not exaggeration or anything. It's the number one place for fossils. And like, there's, there's definitely a big thing where people are like, like with the Royal Tyrell Museum and Drumheller, they're like, oh man, you know, all these fossils are from around here, but you can find fossils up at Grand Prairie in the mountains, uh, down South along St. Mary's river, like all along it, it is everywhere. Um, it's, it's so unbelievably fossil dense. It's hard to comprehend how much there is. And it's not just like from one, uh, age either. Like a lot of places in the world, you get, um, like one era of time. So you get like the Jurassic period or the Cretaceous in Alberta. We have from the Carboniferous, from the Cambrian explosion to T-Rex, you know, and we have after that as well, we have mammal evolution, all of it. So We've got it all. <laughs> Man, like, it's like literally in the first minute, you've already blown my mind with uh, what we have here that I'm seriously unaware of, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely, like, even when I was younger, like, ever ever since I was two, I this is all I ever wanted to do. And in my mind, it was always, oh, okay, Drumheller is all there is. And then as uh, I got older, the the day I got my license, uh, when I turned 16, I went fossil hunting and I was like, oh, this is it. You know, I'm here. I went to Horse Thief Canyon and I was out there fossil hunting. And I was like, it's not going to get better than this. And now as I've done it for the past, you know, few years here and actually seen the Badlands uh, all across Alberta, done fossil hunting in the mountains, gone up north and stuff. It's still every time it blows my mind about the places that I've been and that I haven't been yet. There's so much like you could spend lifetimes doing it and you still wouldn't cover it all. Man, that is, uh, it's so crazy to hear that because I think I was under the, I don't know, the misunderstanding that, you know, everything's kind of been dug up, you know, and that's probably the worst mm-hmm. thing you could say, right? Like I, I just, oh my, yeah, nope. my naivety is like, oh, it's all in that Tyrell Museum in Drumheller. And other than that, like, yeah, maybe, you know, it's a rarity to, to find something. And oh, no. That's... So this is actually the crazy thing. And it's, it's one of those things where I, I can, I can express it and explain it. But unless you're there, it's hard to explain. Like there's places I've gone where in the size of a basketball court and there is thousands of pieces of fossil. It is that dense. Now, in those thousands of pieces, that's not to say, you know, you're going to find, you know, a tyrannosaur. You're going to find a a hadrosaur skeleton. You'd be lucky sometimes to find an intact vertebrae. But it's all these shards it's just so dense. It's so unbelievable. But like 
every year um, we're finding new stuff. Like there's one spot that I had been um, near drum. I had picked it clean. I had been there multiple years. And then I just figured, you want what? I'm going to go back. Let's, let's take a look. And right on the surface, this was right after uh, winter, uh, there was an ankylosaur scoot. So ankylosaur are the big armored dinosaurs uh, with the tail club. Yeah, yeah. Um, they have all like kind of the spikes on their back or whatever, like all the, I don't know, like all the little squares or I don't know how to describe it. But yeah, yeah, it looks like yeah a big, kind like, of like that. Turtle or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a big tank kind of. Yeah. Um, so those individual pieces of armor are called uh, osteoderm or a scoot. So, um, yeah, so it was one of those and it has the ridge on it and everything. And it's, it's just crazy. And yeah, no, there's places I've been where I'm just like, oh yeah, no, I've been over this spot lots of times. And then there'll just be an Alberta sore tooth just sitting right there. And I'm like, huh, kind of crazy. It doesn't take much for the badlands to erode. Um, you get like a half decent rain in and you could be looking at something completely different than there was the day before. Man, that's wild to think about. So there's a lot of stuff that I want to ask you and get into um, things about like, you know, looking for certain giveaways and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, you know, the one thing I really wanted to kick off with was, you know, right now, like we're in the middle, well, tail end of hunting season. Yeah. Um, as for like whether it's fossils or bones or anything you're kind of hunting for in the paleo world, is there like a specific season for that? Like, is it just as soon as that snow melts, you're just kind of going hard spring, summer into the fall? Or is there like kind of a a window that either maybe you're more allowed to do it or a window that's just like more beneficial to be looking, like you said, like if it rains or something like that? Yeah. So usually pretty much um, as soon as the snow melts, it's bang on that I'm just out there doing as much as I can. Um I like my whole spring, summer, fall. I mean, even now, like how little snow there is um, up here is crazy. So I could be fossil hunting tomorrow with how little snow there is. Um, The ground starts to get frozen and stuff. So that starts to become another problem. Um, But yeah, usually for like the best time, especially if you're someone who's like new to it and wanting to get into fossil hunting, you're going to end up going to a lot of places that a lot of people know of. So usually the best time is uh, spring right after the snowmelt, because that's when the biggest amount of uh, weathering and erosion is going to happen for there to be new fossils on the surface. But I mean, um, even some people are like, Oh, right after it rains, do you go out like the next day? The, the soil in the badlands, the mycelium, it becomes like glue when it's wet and it is just impossible. So after like, uh, if there's a lot of rain, I usually give it a couple days before I go out to a spot. Um, like sometimes I'll be out there and I'll, it like this massive storm will just come in and I'm just hightailing it out of there because you're <laughs> like trying to climb up the badland walls and you're just slipping and sliding and you're just, you know, it's a literal uphill battle to get out of there. So yeah, it's kind of, as long as it's decent weather out and there's no snow on the ground, basically that's when I'm out there. That's, you know, ideal time to go fossil hunting is snow melt to first snowfall. That's right in there. That's when I spend most of my time. Yeah. That's super cool. So when you're talking about like, uh, weathering and like rainfall and stuff like that. I'd noticed that you'd shared, um, I believe it was 
like a Tyrannosaurus tooth that you had uncovered. And uh, I think he had mentioned something that like it was almost in like the wide open and it hadn't taken like much damage yet or something like that. Um, is that something that like, you know, once these things surface, like whether you've dug for it or not, uh, they go through like a, a lot more uh, like decomposition or like eroding or whatever from the weather and the elements? Yeah. So like when I found uh, that too, so that's kind of the the brownish one I found uh, this year. And it, it was not too long. I think it was in May that I found it. So not too long after uh, this first uh, or the snow had all melted and spring was starting um, to find one in that condition with no other pieces of it around was crazy to me. I've never found another one like that where there isn't just like chunks of it all sprawled out, especially for that size was the crazy thing. Like it was, it was pretty much just laying there completely um, free from the soil, but it's definitely, it's definitely uh, a time game because as soon as things are exposed, they erode so much faster, you know, whether it's wind, rain, snow, the sun, like even the sun will uh, break it apart. So as soon as stuff hits the surface, it's getting uh, destroyed. So that's why when I say I'll go in places that are super fossil dense and there's just all these shards, it's because a lot of time uh, as it erodes out the hillside, the whole bone isn't going to erode out at once. It's going to, you know, inch by inch fully uncover its way out. So when that first inch gets exposed, it starts uh, getting hit by the elements really hard right away. So that first inch is going to break apart faster. And then the next inch is going to get exposed. And then that's going to break apart. And it's just going to keep going to pattern until the whole bone is destroyed. So usually um, a lot of the fossils that you will see in like uh, the Tyrell um, where they have the whole skeleton it's because they find, you know, that inch that's sticking out and then they go and dig to find the rest of the skeleton while it's in the ground and protected. So a lot of times that's why you find pieces of the skeleton will be a cast. Well, that's usually because that part was either just not there to begin with. That happens a lot. Or that part has already eroded away and they're just now finding the rest of it. Crazy. So... With that being said, so then is there like a a different classification to findings then based on um, like the condition that they're in? Yes and no. So it's kind of just one of those things where um, kind of one way that you can look at it, not so much the condition it's in, but where is the rest of the animal? So is it... uh, isolated element is it a disarticulated element or is it articulated where articulated means that the fossil is in the way that it died so like the vertebrae are aligned the limb bones are pretty much aligned disarticulated is like all mismatched so like the skull is at the foot and the tip of the tails and the stomach and all that sort of stuff and usually that happens as a result of when the animal died it's, it's not getting buried right away. You know, I mean, I'm sure if you've ever been out hunting or whatever and you see like a deer skeleton, 
you know, sometimes you see like the spinal cords intact or a limb, but usually it's all just scattered around, thrown about, you know, the mm-hmm. lower jaw, the skull might be gone, that sort of stuff. Well, the dinosaurs would have been undergoing the same conditions of that. But every once in a while, you come across a deer skeleton and it's the whole thing. And you're like, whoa, that's kind of crazy. So it's it's a game of luck. Um, but as for like condition wise, there isn't so much a way – uh, like I kind of use personally, like, um, I kind of write things out of five on a scale of one to five. So, oh, this is a grade one tooth where it's just all the enamel is gone. It's sun bleached. It's fallen apart. You know, it's not really good condition, but every once in a while, like that one we were talking about, I found on the surface where you find, you know, like a condition four, condition five, that's just incredible. That's kind of, you know, where you're like, holy, you know, this is getting rare. But I don't think there isn't necessarily really a thing in place where it's just like, oh, you know, based on the condition, we're going to scale it through this way. It's just kind of, this is the element. We have it. Oh, it's good condition. That's awesome. That's a plus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. It's super cool to think about that with uh, any sort of finding, like you say, with it being scattered. And that makes a lot more sense too. I never thought about it that way of it being, uh, like articulated or disarticulated or whatever. It's uh, yeah. a really cool way of kind of same thing, putting the yeah. puzzle pieces together of how it, you know, what happened after it may have died, right? Like it, did it get torn apart by some sort of predator and scattered around that mm-hmm. way or did it get crushed or fall or whatever, right? Yeah. And right. so certain things we actually have examples for. So like, um, there was a post I made recently that showed a piece of fossil that has bite marks in it. So we can find that a lot where these bones have um, scavenger marks on it. Or sometimes we can even find where it's healed bite marks, uh, healed scars in the bone. Um, yeah, no, there's all sorts of stuff. There's you're, you're still making a guess like, you know, you have all these context clues as to how it died. How did it get here? But for Mm -hmm. us to ever know 100%, it's really hard. Um, Like the at the Royal Tyrell, they have a Gorgosaurus there. That's pretty much it's like 90-something percent complete. It's the most complete Tyrannosaur uh, fossil ever found. And it's curled up. And we've seen that a couple times. And originally, the theory kind of was that when it died – it maybe just got kind of washed that way by water and it kind of bent it that way. And then they're kind of like, well, that doesn't really make much sense. You know, we've seen this more than once fossil stein. It's called the death pose um, Mm -hmm. in quotation. So we've seen it more than once. So it just washing like that by random chance is kind of weird. So then the next theory was, okay, all the tense muscles, you know, in the tail and the neck, these are really strong animals. When they died, those muscles start to tighten and it would curl up. So that was kind of the leading theory for a long time until eventually now the leading theory is um, a lot of animals, when they get some sort of head trauma or they're having a seizure, they start to tense up. They curl, their all of their muscles start firing off. So we think what's happening is this is a sign of the animal having a seizure or it had some sort of major head trauma and it curls up like that and it dies or even the same thing if it had like a seizure and let's say it was near water. 
So now it's having a seizure and it's in the water and it's drowning. You're cutting oxygen off to the brain. So, you know, now you're getting that head trauma. So now it's just doubling down as being worse. And because it's in water, it's more likely to get preserved really well. So then it gets buried. And then that's why you find stuff like the Gorgosaurus and the death pose that is in such good condition. Wow. That's a, yeah, a really interesting way to think about it for sure. Um, and I, it reminds me somewhat of what's it called? The uh, like almost like a rigor mortis or whatever it is, like when you're hunting yeah. and like you have a certain amount of time after you've like, you know, when you're going to find the animal that you've, you know, mm-hmm. to harvest it or whatever, it starts to set in and they become like extremely stiff. Right. Um, yeah. But then it also makes me think of like that, that like child's pose that, you know, even like humans like us do where you know where you like get all like curled up you know when you get like a stomach ache and you're yep. like, you know it makes me wonder if it's yeah and i mean that's just out of total uh naive perspective to what well i mean on hey it's like, it could yeah. absolutely be right like this is all like i said we have these context clues and we're making the best guess but stuff like that where it's just like well no let's compare it to modern animals and the habits that we have and they have that's how we come up with these answers. So no theory is outlandish. I've heard mm-hmm. some, you know, pretty crazy paleo theories before, but um, no, the stuff like that, that's, it's, it's a very constructive way to look at it. And it's the way that we have to use for most uh, ways when figuring out what happened to dinosaurs. We don't really have them around anymore besides birds and whatever, but yeah. the way that we're figuring this out and trying to figure out what happened is we're comparing them to modern day animals, what we know about biology now. Yeah. And yeah, it's just so wild to think about, you know, how the community will um, kind of transfer from ideology, the idea of like how, how things could have panned out or how they could have happened to kind of almost like brainstorm that and, uh, kind of cross network it. One thing I was going to ask you um, at some point in the chat, this seems like a really good time to ask it anyways. And I can't remember if when we were talking and messaging, if I might've mentioned that uh, hunt primitive to you. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you've heard about them already or if that was something I know I keep telling everybody about those guys. So <laughs> I don't know if uh, I mentioned it to you and if you looked into it at all. Um, yeah. I kind of looked at some of their stuff. Um, it was pretty cool. Like some of the stuff they're doing, like that very, uh, natural way, right? That mm-hmm. very, um, very like such a good way to look into stuff, like and look at it from a different perspective. Like you're really trying to get in tone with the nature. You're trying to get with the roots of it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very cool. Yeah, I'd never heard of them before, but once you had sent it to me, I was looking at at their stuff, and it was really cool. Like uh, to do all that sort of stuff, to do that, you know, quote unquote primitive sort of hunting. It's really crazy because people did this for, you know, thousands and thousands of years and they were so successful and they understood animals so well. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of just one of those things where uh, people are like, oh, you know, I can read about it and stuff like that. It's one of those things you have to, it takes practice. You have to do it to actually learn those behaviors, to see those things, to see those patterns. It's crazy. Yeah, man. And and what I really love too is, and I was going to ask you if you've seen this kind of stuff in your findings, um, maybe more so into like some of the undulate, I've come across a lot of like deer and things like that too. Um, 
so what they're kind of doing is like they talk a lot about like reverse engineering so they'll like hunt with like a primitive uh you know like a clovis point arrow or whatever and then they'll use like different rocks and clovis to like actually harvest the animal so when they're skinning and butchering and and it's funny because they talk about it like uh you know we're using these tools the way we modern day know how to use like a knife right so it's like they you know Mm -hmm. in history maybe man didn't harvest an animal uh with like the same kind of stroking method as like using a knife or something right but when when they harvest the animal it's leaving like marks on the bone and marks on uh you know all over the place that could maybe be like a telltale sign when compared to like archaeological or paleological like yep. findings archaeology yeah and it, it's just kind of i wonder like if, if there's anything like that like when you're talking about like bite marks on some of the animals and stuff if there was anything you've come across that seems almost like um interacted with by like uh i'm trying to find the right word for like prehistoric human they're like <laughs> that's not the right word but just you know yeah, older so, generations of humans or whatever yeah, so a lot of the stuff uh, that we have in Alberta, like the dinosaurs and stuff, obviously, you know, you're not going to find um, exactly traces of people dissecting that sort of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> uh, obviously. But like, um, I got invited up to the Royal Alberta Museum this summer, and I was looking at some stuff there, and they have a lot of examples of uh, from places, especially in southern Alberta where they um they had found this camel and there's um clovis points yeah so a prehistoric camel so fun fact camels actually evolved in north america um <laughs> so yeah they wow. found this uh it was either a camel or a horse either way uh horses and camels both evolved in north america so they found yeah the clovis points these other tools it had marks all over the body from them butchering it um, it's never something that I've come across cause I spend most of my time in the paleo part, um, yeah. which they do start to intersect, uh, like paleontology and archeology. Um, there has been things when I've been out doing work, uh, where we have seen archeological stuff. So there's things called extra formational class. So, um, an extra formational class is from when, because uh, BC is just made up from a bunch of islands that just smashed up into each other, formed, you know, part of the mountains and stuff, and then they all just kind of collided into the mainland. Um, and the idea of an extraformational class is the rocks that aren't native to this area, but they're here, and they've been here for a long time, including from uh, the time when dinosaurs were around. So these rocks... Um, make their way so let's say 70 million years ago which is the age of a lot of the badlands along the red deer river so 70 million years ago these rocks make their way over here and then they get buried uh just like fossils do and now they're eroding out today um so at first people were like oh you know these these rocks they must be from they must have formed back then and then they started to realize no these are more likely extra formational class but the crazy thing about them is especially in the prairies, there's a lot of lack of like good uh, types of rocks and stuff to use to make um, Clovis points, uh, knives and stuff like that. So 
extra formational class are very crystal like rocks. Um, like a lot of, there's a lot of pyrite quartz stuff like that. That's good for making, um, primitive tools and stuff like that. So we've seen evidence of thumb scrapers made out of extra formational class, um, arrowheads, all that sort of stuff. So there's definitely a line where the, the paleontology part and the archaeology part start to collide for sure. Dude, that is so interesting. So you're basically saying that from the understanding that you're putting together through, again, the puzzle pieces of the past, um, it's seeming like BC has a formation from multiple islands that collided and then rocks that have ended up like non-native but here like is that like yeah i'm trying to wrap my head around that and then yeah we've so used as those as non- those islands started to smash in and all that sort of stuff it caused a major shift so um like in uh sometimes in dinosaur provincial park or even um in the red deer river valley near drum there will be rocks coming out that seem like they're you know, they're, they're from the mountains. They're this oil shale rock. Um, and it's just like, this doesn't belong here. This shouldn't be here. So it's just all that movement is really crazy. It's really weird to think about that. All of that stuff has moved so much. Um, and the way that it benefited, uh, you know, people hundreds of years ago that were using these rocks, um, that were, you know, would have been more rare in the prairies, but because of all this movement of uh, the rocks, they were here. So it actually gave them a surplus of um, rocks that they could use to make these tools. Wow. And you're like, this is already just like, have, you've already blown my mind <laughs> for <laughs> things I didn't realize about, uh, you know, our own province, our own country and things like that, that I just, again, have been just naive to or misunderstood and stuff like that. It's so, so crazy and so cool. What's like literally just outside in our province, you know? Yeah, like- no, absolutely. And it, like, it's one of those things where it's also, it's kind of hard to find some of the information. Like a lot of it, I'm fortunate enough, you know, that I live near a lot of these badlands. So I'm able mm-hmm. to go out and get that experience, see these things um, through the work I've done at the Royal Tyrell and stuff and with the Royal Alberta Museum. So I've gotten a lot of privilege in that uh, aspect for sure. But it's definitely just one of those things where it's just like there's so much of it. I I would I barely know a lot of it. Like there's some people out there that I've worked with and they're just talking about all this stuff. And I'm just like, whoa, hold on. Like, you know, hold the phone a minute. There's so much stuff and it, it starts to just click. It just starts to make sense after a while. But then sometimes it also like, oh yeah, this makes sense. And then you learn one thing and it's just Pandora's box. You've opened 30 doors and there's 30 million answers to the questions that you have. This is yeah, this is super, super, super cool stuff to me. And like, same thing. It's just, I haven't, you know, maybe been around um, knowledgeable people in the province that could, you know, dispute this kind of information or, you know, and that's, uh, yeah, it just blows my mind that this is kind of 
what's around and what's constantly being found. I was super, I don't know, ignorant to the fact that like there's still so much and it's such a continuation. Um, Oh, it's crazy. It is, it is absolutely crazy. Like even uh, at Dinosaur Provincial Park, which is like, if we want to talk about Alberta being the number one spot in the world, then the number one spot in Alberta is Dinosaur Provincial Park. Um, it's crazy. And it's so good that it's provincial park to have that area protected. It's, it's absolutely unbelievable. It's just amazing. But the stuff there is crazy. And every year they are making groundbreaking discoveries. Um, like when I did a bit of work out there in the summer and the stuff that we got to see, like I've looked in a lot of different, uh, formations and I'll kind of, at some point I'll go over, um, the general idea of a lot of the formations I go in. But mm-hmm. Dinosaur Provincial Park is its main formation is the Dinosaur Park formation. You know, big surprise. Um, <laughs> it is it is the densest, the most fossil dense, fossil rich layer I've ever seen in my life. You can't go two feet without finding something just extraordinary. It's crazy. Man, this is stuff I got to like revisit because I re- like, you know, everyone kind of visits this stuff is like, oh, you know, like it's something to go and see and do. And it's super cool and it's beautiful and it's amazing. And, you know, the even the hoodoos and stuff, everything's like so incredible. And then you yeah. don't go for a few years and you just forget. Like, I didn't know that oh, they're yeah. having groundbreaking finds there every year, you know, like that's yep. crazy. Well, even uh, I think just in the past couple of years here, um, they were working on Caskey uh, the Hadrosaur. And um, they're still working on it now, but it's uh, believed to have pretty much all the skin on it preserved, which is crazy rare. Yeah. So every once in a while um, you find a fossil and this is like, you know, rare, rare. You find like a little skin impression and there's a, there's Leonard, the admonosaur, I believe from, I want to say Montana. It's what it's either Montana, North or South Dakota, somewhere in there or Wyoming. Um, and it, it's mummified. Like the skin got preserved and all this stuff. Every once in a while, uh, we do find, um, fossils that have this skin, but the one from dinosaur eventual park, it's so far, it seemed to be amazing. There's lots of news articles on it, um, for when it came out. So we're super, we're super excited to see, um, what that one's going to look like. I'm super excited to see it when it's finally out. It'll definitely be a while because uh, that stuff, it takes so much time to prepare these fossils and everything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you ever if you ever want, look at the pictures of it in the news reports and it shows like uh, the part that they found sticking out of the hill. Like I, like I was talking about that one inch that you find. Well, they yeah. found it when it was like the first or second inch that got exposed, which means like, you know, You've got pretty much all the skeleton untouched in there, and if the whole thing is covered in skin, it's gonna be it's gonna be crazy. It's gonna be unbelievable. Wow, that's insane! I didn't even know that they found something with the skin. I'm like, how uneducated am I on this topic? <laughs> it's crazy, man. Um, man, I wanted to. Uh, yeah, there's so many things I wanna wanted to touch on. Even as we're talking, I'm like, man, this is bringing up a million more questions. Than <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm talking about. You know, yeah. you open one door and it just keeps going. <laughs> There's more questions than answers. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to kind of go back to what you mentioned, like since you were two, right. So 
you know, your life growing up and everything, this, you know, I think you had previously mentioned to me that uh, your father was like a taxidermist. Yeah. So <clears throat> growing up, um, I grew up in Acme, Alberta, if you have any idea where that is. Um, yeah. It's just really small town, like six, 700 people. It's about a 35, 40 minute drive to Drumheller. So I grew up in this small town and in my house, there's, you know, moose, you know, there's deer, you know, snowy owl, bald eagle. My dad was a, a taxidermist in Calgary and he used to do all this work um, and used to work on a lot of big game and stuff for uh, people in Calgary, like um, the Calgary airport. You ever seen the geese hanging in there? Yeah. That yeah. Was so those, yep. No kidding. Yeah. And then uh, cool. have you ever seen snow day with Chevy Chase? It was filmed yeah, yeah, in yeah. Calgary. In, yeah. 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 So you, you know, the guy in the, the, um, the snow plow and he's got the bird. No. Yeah. I do. I know exactly the scene of this movie. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the bird, uh, the bird was done by my dad as well. No way, man. Yeah. That's so growing up, we, yeah. So growing up, we had all these, you know, all these animals and stuff and that, that really spiked, you know, my interest growing up, um, being surrounded by all this stuff, the preservation, and he used to, he specialized in birds. That was his main thing. And they're just beautiful, man. Like the amount of time he would spend on them was crazy. And then my, uh, my grandfather, so my dad's dad, um, he was a fish and wildlife officer in Calgary. So he was also, you know, um, he influenced it a lot with all that stuff. Um, it's definitely been something in my family for a long time. Like even my mom, when she was, my age she used to volunteer at a wildlife sanctuary a lot so it's definitely been in my family you know this uh this drive towards nature and the natural um it's definitely been there for sure my whole life man that is so cool and what a bunch of cool like inspiration to have um that was pretty much exactly like how i was going to ask it was if that inspired you to work in the outdoors and enjoy the outdoors and everything and man by the sounds of it from multiple family members it was uh kind of already leading you on the path that's too cool um so throughout you know schooling and everything and after school like you were just dead set on like the paleo side of things with dinosaurs and like prehistoric history you were just like to this point it sounds like the whole time oh yeah what i'm gonna do so yep no so like um because i'm in school uh now for um, a by a holy a bio degree. Um, mm-hmm. I was gonna go in for a paleo degree, um, but I wanted to start with kind of a more general base. Um, so I used to work at the Tyrell, and then I did that kind of um, here and there. And then once I was out of high school, I was like, all right, well, it's it's time to go go get a degree, go do something cool. So I was like, well, I'll go into bio. And I love it a lot. I'm in my second year now, so it's really cool. But yeah, I don't, I don't know what it was ever since I was young. You know, everyone kind of has that phase growing up where they're like, oh, my favorite dinosaur is T-Rex. Well, I guess (laughs) I just, I just never grew out of it. It's just always, always been there. (laughs) That's funny. That's really cool though, man. So when you are like, you know, going to school, whether it's bio or the paleo and stuff like that too, this is also going to probably come off as like a, I can't think of another word right now other than naive uh, question, but yeah. Um, so how do these types of things really get 
kind of funded and you know how like how does one even kind of have a career in paleontology like you basically like is it these sites are funded through like the further understanding of our province and history and education or like yeah for the most part that's pretty much it it's uh a lot of it like the museums are all um government ran um so that's where you know if someone was going to be paying me to do paleo it would be that um Mm -hmm. in a lot of other places like the states um where fossil hunting and paleontology is a lot more privatized uh people will dig fossils and stuff um and just sell them or people will start their own museum and go out and because the drive is is you want to have you want to educate people but you also want to have you know you want to have cool dinosaurs if you just have like you know a stegosaurus or triceratops (laughs) you know people people still love those things but you know stegosaurus or triceratops has been people's favorite for how long people want to see the new the exciting they they want to learn you know science is just such a draw people like to know things so um it's definitely one of those things where it's like without without it there would be a lot of questions uh about a lot of things so it's definitely really nice to have it in alberta that it's more protected um that someone can't just go out you know dig a fossil sell it and then you know wow we've now lost that fossil from science forever Whereas wow. if you actually want to go do that, you have to be part of an institution. You have to have, you know, your permits, you have to have it all right. So yeah, it's definitely, it's mainly, yeah. Um, how these things get supported is the main idea of it is behind the government wants to influence this for the education, the science, the tourism, um, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I do like that idea of, like you say, and, in some places in the world, if people are picking them up and selling them, like that's all great and everything, but you know, you're starting to lose out on actually putting that puzzle together or, you know, connecting the dots and especially through science and stuff like that. Like it's, it can be so important for at least people to start to kind of have their hands and eyes on it to figure it out more and then put it on display on something like, you know, the Royal Terrell or something that, um, you know, for people to really appreciate and understand more and learn more about. Um, yep. that being said, I know we were kind of talking about this in our chats and stuff like that over the last while. Um, but I did really want to touch on that too, was kind of the legalities and stuff too. Cause a lot of the people listening to this podcast are, uh, out in nature all the time, whether it's hunting yep. or fishing, and they're going to be prone to coming across things, whether it's different fossils or arrowheads or things like that. Um, and I always wondered, and you know, I always thought it would be really cool to find stuff like that, but I always wondered what the legality is. Cause I've heard of a lot of people even talk about uh, like catch and release arrowheads where they'll go yep. find some and then they'll just leave them be, you know, like they won't take that. Right. Um, so if you, if you could even speak a bit on kind of what are the should and shouldn't do is if you were to come across different things and like, what are you allowed yep. to, to keep? Yeah, so in terms for um, the legality of a lot of fossils and fossil collecting, for the private collector, um, you are legally only allowed to surface collect. If you are to dig or anything, you have to be part of an institution. You have to have the permit and the permission to do so. Um, As well, fossils found in Alberta cannot be sold or removed from Alberta without the permission of the government and having the proper permits. 
Um, there are four types of fossils you can um, send in a request to have personal ownership of. So the fossils that like I surface collect and everything, I don't technically own. I hold it in trust, basically. Um, but if you can claim to own um, impression fossils, you can claim to own shell fossils, um, trace and what's the other one? Those are the three main ones. And then the other one is petrified wood is the other big one. So, yeah, you can have uh, ammonite shell, petrified wood, leaf impressions, and oysters. So those kind of just – those more basic ones, like even around um, Lethbridge, they do a lot of amylite mining where amylite is uh, am- ammonite shell. And then they do a lot of mining for that stuff there. So – you know, they're actually actively mining these fossils um, and then they sell them and then they use it for, uh, you know, money and whatever. Um, but you can find that in a lot of shops. Um, hmm. But if you are to find a fossil that, let's say, is scientifically important or is buried and you're like, oh, wow, this is crazy. Best thing is to leave it there, take pictures of it um, and then report it to a museum. Usually the Royal Tyrell is the best one to go to. Um, and then you can report that sort of stuff there. Okay, cool. And so with that being said, when you do find something that's like a surface finding like that, how probable is it that there's a lot more around it? Like when yourself, like when you're out there, Eric, do you find like, okay, you came across, say something as simple as like a vertebrae or whatever right mm-hmm. um or maybe a tooth maybe when you are finding teeth is it like are they just losing teeth at random or are you immediately like okay what else like do you immediately just start scouring the area <laughs> are you like there could be more like or do you send it in and you try like they do more of like a perimeter check on that kind of area uh at that point yeah so it's like a whole skeleton or something yep so usually when you find stuff more than likely you're finding an isolated piece, Um, especially for like a lot of the teeth I find. So dinosaurs actually shed their teeth, like uh, crocodiles and stuff, how they shed their teeth. Um, So like the average Tyrannosaur, let's say Albertosaurus or a T-Rex, their teeth would last, an individual tooth would last like, you know, one and a half, two and a half years before it was shed. Um, So pretty much all the teeth I have are all shed teeth. Um, but I mean, there's one that I found where right beside it was another shed tooth. And a lot of times tyrannosaurs, their teeth would break off during feeding like crocodiles and stuff or sharks. Sharks have the same thing. Um, so sometimes, yes, depending on what you find, it's like, okay, I'm seeing a limb bone here and a vertebrae and I'm seeing, um, you know, joints and knuckles and stuff. Okay, well then likely there might, there probably is more going into the hillside here. But sometimes you'll find a limb bone and that'll be it. That's all that'll be around it. So usually when I find something um, that indicates like, okay, this is a good spot, you know, stuff has been fossilized here. Likely there will be a thing or two more, maybe. Um, You know, whether that thing is good or not is, you know, up to pure luck. So... It's definitely, yeah, where I, I'll look and if I find something, like if I find a tooth, I'm usually down, hands and knees, and I'm scouring the area. And <laughs> around. 
Um, and then I'll, I'll look in that layer farther along the valley. Um, and it's just like, okay, this is obviously a good layer. Um, and sometimes you just find a little pocket in a layer or sometimes the layer goes for a hundred feet and you're finding really good stuff. Wow. That's just incredible to think about like the, the potential or the possibilities from kind of like each finding and, uh, kind of like that drive, like when you're turning things over and finding stuff, like I think when you, you kind of mentioned on it before we we're touching on like um, formations or stuff, you're kind of like looking for, like your eye might be more like attuned to the land of yeah. uh, where things could potentially end up. Like, I guess one example I've heard in the past is things with arrowheads is like, um, you know, like a lake, they'll say, look at whichever direction the wind most commonly blows and it's like oh, yeah. most arrowheads would like blow to that side of the lake or something like that. Yep. Right. Um, is, is there things that you're genuinely looking for in the landscape? And then how often are you kind of turning up things that you think are something and are just a rock? <laughs> yeah. So um, no, that's definitely a very valid point. So like um, a lot of stuff, it washes with the wind and like, you know, we're, we're talking about things that died 70 million years ago. You're trying to read the land and predict what were the conditions back then and where am I most likely going to find these fossils. So um, the way that the water used to flow, so the Red Deer River, as it comes out of Red Deer, it goes east and then it bends south uh, through, um, it goes down to Drumheller and then it eventually goes east some more and south. And then eventually, you know, it goes to, it goes with the South Saskatchewan river. They connect. Mm-hmm. Um, so it used to be that water flowed East. So sometimes if I find uh, a fossil, I will start looking Eastward to see, okay, um, here is, let's say an individual tooth or here's a knuckle bone. Maybe I can find the claw or one of the other teeth Eastward from that. So I'll try looking, um, in towards the valley a bit more or trying to look um, like past it because you're working on a slant so it's kind of hard like I can't just walk into the hillside and mm-hmm. just you know start walking east but I can kind of try looking in nooks and crannies and stuff that might expose something you know even a couple inches eastward you might be looking for that sort of stuff um, but there's definitely also like like certain coal layers you're starting to get more unlikely to find things in, you know, it's, it's dense coal. Um, you're going to be unlikely to find fossils. Um, the other thing is usually when I start seeing a lot of colorful, um, rocks and stuff that are just like, you know, granite, all this sort of stuff, quartz, and it's like super dense, you find pockets of that. Usually you're not going to find a fossil in that as well. Um, so certain layers I do keep an eye eye out for like color and stuff where I found, you know, really good pockets where let's say there's lots of teeth or lots of other really good fossils. Um, But sometimes I'll go into an area where, hey, it's really good and it has all these traits. Um, And then I go to one that looks identical to it and there's nothing. Or I'll look at, let's say, one of those colorful rock slides and I'll be like, oh, you know, there's nothing here. And then I'll go look at one 100 feet away and then there will be fossils in it. So you're playing a game of luck but you're trying to do everything in your power to increase your odds 
but it all depends on what were the conditions, you know, 70 million years ago. So it's, it's one of those things where you get a better eye, you start to read it better, but you know, though that could be completely thrown out the window if there was some, you know, a weird variable 70 million years ago that you just can't predict. That's so crazy to think about because the way I relate to that or to think about that is, um, you know, like when you're hunting successfully, right. Or I mean, same thing, like trying to put the odds in your favor and like a fair chase hunting, right. It's like, you're constantly like reading the land of like, where would they be moving? You know, where are mm-hmm. you going to move in correlation to the wind and, you know, how are you going to play the land and play the elements and everything in your favor? And which way are they going to be going for like travel corridors for water and food and things like that too. And it's just crazy because it makes me think that you probably do like a lot of scout. Like, do you do like scouting in this again, you probably do, but this is kind of a goofy question, but are you doing like scouting or even like virtual scouting, like potentially like looking at land areas that you're like allowed to go to, um, and trying to yep. pick out like geological locations. Um, yes, sir. That. Yeah. That's All cool. the time. Like um, I'll be at work sometimes and just, you know, you put up uh, Google Earth and I start looking at the Badlands and I'm like, man, that looks like a good spot. And then um, I use an app called uh, iHunter. Yeah, and man. Can, yeah. And yeah. you can buy the county maps and stuff and then it lets you know what's crown land, you know, what's natural area. Or it tells you who owns that land, so I can get in contact with the landowner. Yeah. Um, so I use Google Earth, and I'm like, okay, you know, these few spots look pretty good. Let's look at and compare it to iHunter. Okay, I'm allowed on this land, this land. Okay, I need permission for this land. Oh, this is a you know provincial park area. There's no collecting allowed in there, right? So it's just kind of one of those things. Yeah, absolutely. And even some places like. Sometimes I'll look at Google Earth and be like, that's the spot. And then I'll get there and I'm like, oh, this is not the spot. So, <laughs> Been there. Yeah. <laughs> there's definitely a lot of times where I'll be at a certain spot and I'm looking at the other side of the river, the other side of the valley. I'm looking north and south. Like what places are exhibiting um, the variables that I would like to see that would make it more likely for me to find more fossils for sure. Um, yeah, no, uh, I hunter, I love that app. That app is so good and you can like, uh, leave waypoints and stuff. So I use it all the time for like, okay, if I'm finding really good stuff here, um, take a GPS out with me, get my altitude, get my coordinates. And then I plot them all. And then I see, you know, how are they relating? Oh, am I at the same altitude here as I am here? Am I 30 feet up the slope, you know, at point A, am I 10 feet up the slope at point B, am I, you know, 70 feet up the slope? And then I can kind of start to build a mental map of the layers from there. Dude. Yeah. That's super cool. And, and yeah, I mean, of course, I think a vast majority of listeners use iHunter for hunt. If you like, if anyone listening doesn't like, yeah, it's for the yearly subscription of what I think it's 10 bucks a year. It's uh, highly good. Yeah. It's so good for everything. Um, And it's a great, option in comparison i know there's a lot of other apps out there and a lot of them from the states that are starting to be in canada now but uh yeah yeah, for to it be for them to just have one for each specific province is really nice Uh, Mm um when you're going out like that are you doing um like primarily day trips or are you gonna like do you like to try to stay at a place and do like a you know a weekend camping thing where you're kind of going from a camp on a spot and going around uh-huh. Yeah, kind of a bit of both. So while I'm in school um, right now in Red Deer, 
Um, there's a few of the places I like to go that are only like an hour or so away. So I usually do a day trip, um, go out there and then spend some places. But there's some places, you know, more down south and stuff that are really good that are in the dinosaur park formation that I'm, you know, I take a week off in the summer and I go out there. I take, you know, half a week off and I'm doing that stuff. So kind of just all depends. It's if it's one of those areas where it's like, hey, I'm just scouting. Maybe what I'll do, especially if I'm scouting far away, I'll take, you know, a couple days off. I'll check a place. Okay, this place looks really good. Let's mark that down. Then I'll go check another place the next day and yada, yada. And then what I'll do is I will then make a big trip and then I'll spend a few days at a campground near there or whatever. Um, But usually the stuff, the Red Deer River um, from Drumheller to um, uh, Heatbird kind of area when the river starts to bend south. Usually that stuff I kind of just day trip. Um, but yeah, if it's kind of getting more down south or I'm doing a bit of work at Dinosaur Provincial Park, yeah, I usually go out for a few days. Yeah, that's super cool. It's just like, this is just legitimately, hunt, it's hunting in a different way. Like you're reading the yep. land, you're doing so much stuff. I just find it fascinating. Like when you're talking about reading the land and you're like, you know, reading the land as if it was 70 million years ago, not necessarily mm-hmm. what I'm looking at right now, Yep. which is such a, like, even now hunting, I'm going to probably think about you at times and be like, Man, how would you be looking at this right now from 70 million years ago? And just, just to have the thought cross my mind, you know, it's just such a remarkable thing to experience. Yeah, no, I've, I've always wanted to do uh, hunting stuff. I've never really done a lot. I've done a lot of shed hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spend a lot of time doing that. You know, you're looking at the game trails. Where am I going to find sheds? And then sometimes, you know, you're walking in a place where it's like, there's not going to be a shed here. And then there's just a shed there. And you're like, what? Like, what is, what was this deer doing here? Yeah. Like, you know, what is he doing? But um, this is also kind of a crazy thing. Um, in the Badlands a lot, uh, whitetail hate the Badlands. They, I have never seen a whitetail in the Red Deer River Valley. Um, I only ever see mule deer and moose go down into the valley. I've only right. found sheds from mule deer and moose, but whitetail, they will not go in that valley. It's crazy. Yeah, that's a funny thing. And I mean, I think a lot of people like past guests or listeners and stuff too could uh, agree with that or testament to that too. Because yeah, it's you never really see anybody doing spot and stock whitetail hunting down in the badlands like at all. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah, no, the mule deer they they love it. They're always out there. Like I have uh, one shed set I found where I can't even wrap. my like fingers around the butt of it he's just massive this massive prime mule deer and it's just like you know because a lot of people aren't going into the badlands to hunt it's it's a pain getting in and out of those i could imagine hauling a deer or a moose up in and out of those so no once they get that big they they know where they can go and hide really well and it's weird for sure because it definitely seems like even like i hunt a lot in the bow zone around uh like edmonton strathcone area and stuff and uh, it's funny, too, because even in the area I primarily hunt, there's like a divide between sections of land where just mule deer don't go and yeah. whitetail deer don't go. Like, it always seems like mule deer will, like, prefer, like, a hills open yep. topography where whitetail, I always find, are, like, bush-driven, yeah, like, open field. I don't know. It's it's kind of no, weird. I, it seems I, like, I yeah. see it all the time, too. I mean, that's even in the city of red deer here like mm-hmm. i rarely see mule deer in the city but whitetail love it 
they will just be through it. They're walking up to people, but mule deer don't like it. They are they are not like that. And it's so weird. It's weird how they kind of like have their distinctive territory. Like you don't see, I mean, some places you might get a mix of both, but I've yep. been very much finding that it's like um, you see kind of one or the other in certain sections mm-hmm. for sure. But Yeah, no, whitetail are definitely, that's the other thing I find is whitetail often are a lot more territorial. So mule deer, I think they like the areas that whitetail aren't going to be because they're not getting chased out by whitetail. Whitetail, they're they're mean sometimes. They definitely they like to stand their ground a lot. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's cool, man. It's cool to have that like outside, like similar perspective in like a different way. Like while you're out there doing these things, it's like you're still learning a lot about yep. all the same stuff, and there's so much that translates from to like both fields for sure and like you Mm -hmm. kind of end up dipping into both fields for sure i think probably the craziest thing when i was out there coming across for the first time because i'd always kind of heard people be like oh you know sometimes cougar will follow the river down and um there's the odd one in drum sometimes you know you get that like your old neighbor tells you that and you're like okay whatever yeah. So when I was working at the Tyrell, one day there was a cougar on the trail right outside the Tyrell. And wow. we were like, whoa. And we were understaffed that day, which sucked because I wanted to run out there so badly. Go <laughs> look at this thing. Um, but then this year was the first year I've ever actually found evidence of cougar. So I was out um, right after uh, winter. And I, I found it kind of weird as I kept finding um eaten deer carcasses kind of under trees and stuff like more like pushed away like you could see the animal was dragged there and I was kind of like you know this is kind of weird and there wasn't coyote prints and I was just like this is kind of weird and I kind of was just like whatever you know this is um this could be anything I'm probably reading into it and then I was out another time um and in this shady spot you could see the claw marks. I've got pictures of it where the cougar had raked the ground to build up um, the nice cool dirt to lay in. And just right in the middle is this cougar print right in the valley. And I remember I was like, I was here two weeks ago standing in this spot and this was not here. So <laughs> scary. I, yeah, I've, got a, I've got some plans for summer coming up to put out some wildlife camps. Cause I would, I would love to get definitive proof of a, some cougars in that valley because i know they're there now you know yeah. now i like my old neighbor um but they're they're down there for sure and i remember yeah coming across it for the first time i was like you know it's it's a little daunting like i'm not too worried about it but it's still like cougars they would they blend into the hillsides and stuff you know mm-hmm. they're perfectly colored for the badlands so sometimes i'll like i'll like hear something and i'm just like huh and you know you like jerk your head to the side it's like what's that and then I remember one time I was going through some brush and I was, it was pretty thick and I was trying to get to uh, a section of the Badlands and you had to cross through like this little Creek and I'm going through and I look to my left and there's just a deer probably six feet away from me. I probably leaped eight feet. <laughs> and I was like, uh Oh, and I just jumped and I was just, he, him and I probably ran at the same speed in opposite directions. <laughs> what are you it's, doing here? What are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> and even sometimes like moose down there, I'll turn the corner. I'm like, oh, great. I am, you know, face to face with a moose right now. And yeah. it's the middle of rut. You know, this is not where I want to be right now. Gets the um, adrenaline going. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, for sure. So you kind of just back away. Okay, I'll go a different way. Um, I've heard some of those like cougars could be, and I think it was actually, um, I had a guest, I think it was episode five. Uh, and yeah, it was the guy that runs Trust the Land Outfitters. And he was talking about how uh, bigger like tomcats would mm-hmm. um, like in the mountains would almost like push out smaller cats into places oh, yeah. like that. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like the the leftovers or like, you know, and that's like, it's same thing yeah. even like around Edmonton. Like you said, you get the odd guy that's like, uh, yeah, you know, there's a cougar sighting and somewhere that there just legitimately should mm-hmm. never be, but it's like these oh, ones yeah. that are getting, um, yeah, like pushed out of their territories from bigger cats. It was, yeah, Seth Duncan, uh, there was episode six, I think. But anyway, he is extremely knowledgeable about cougars. And uh, yeah, it, it was just so cool to well, think that because, yeah. Well, even in uh, Red Deer here, um, we have uh, trail camera pictures of two cougars in Red Deer in the city. So they're they're smart and they know how to hide and where to be. So it's definitely, it's crazy. They're crazy oh, yeah. animals. Um, they're one of those ones where it's like, you, you want to see it, but you don't, you know, you want to see one, but usually when you see one, you're kind of like, not good. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was always yeah. like about uh, rattlesnakes is I always wanted to see a rattlesnake. And for the first time this summer, I seen one crossing the road and I was like, ah, that doesn't really count. And then <laughs> I was down not too long ago and I'm going, I get to like uh, the plateau right to the drop off in the hillside. And this is more down South kind of medicine hat area. Um, rattlesnakes don't really come up to the Drummiller Harry area. They do Dinosaur Provincial Park, but that's that's about as north as they'll go. Um, so I'm going off the plateau and I'm going down, and all of a sudden, you know, you hear the rattle, and it's not the type of rattle you expect because a lot of times in movies and stuff, when you hear that rattle, you're hearing a full-grown adult um, diamondback rattlesnake, and they have a distinctive rattle. Yeah. Um, but this was just a young one. And, uh, you know, and it, it's making it's it sounds more like a hiss when they're young. The rattlesnakes are just prairie rattlesnakes down here. Um, and I was like, I knew it right away, though, like never actually hearing a prairie rattlesnake uh, rattle. I still like I heard it. I was like, no way. So I'm looking at this thing and it's like just gearing up. It's just, you know, riving its head right up. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, like, you know, I kind of want to pick it up. I'm not going to. But part of it was like, oh, this thing's so cool. And I was just like, ah, you know, it's a young one. You know, even if it did bite me, it would probably have less venom. I'm not that worried about it. Well, it turns out that's wrong. When they're young, they don't know how to – because making venom is very costly for them. Um, when they're young, they don't know how to control their venom. So if they bite you, they just unload all the venom in their body. So it's actually worse to get bit by a young one a lot of times than an adult one. So, wow. yeah, I learned that like the day after – um, when I was telling some of my buddies from the Tyrell and they were like, Oh no, you got that backwards, man. <laughs> and that's crazy. So yeah. And that's something I didn't know. And that's, I've always, I don't know. We have like a, a mess of garter snakes out here. Oh yeah. Um, and they're like pretty protected. Same thing. You can't be moving them around or doing stuff with them, but yeah. Um, it's just funny that, yeah, I haven't, thought about a lot i haven't hunted down south a lot and i'm pretty like 
don't want i'm happier not seeing them <laughs> oh man i i'd always my buddies always told me stories like even scorpions uh you can find scorpions down dinosaur provincial park medicine hat oh. area in the badlands um they're rare um my buddy saw one and then the other guy at the tyrell who's been working there for like you know 30 years has seen two in his lifetime i would love to see one um but that was even like the one time i was down south there and we're going in the grass back to the car and um, I'm walking and I see like this shimmer in the grass and it's like two inches away from my boot. And like, same thing as the deer, I leap in the air and I'm like, oh no, you know, this is a rattlesnake. And then I looked at its tail and there wasn't a rattle. It's just a, a bull snake, but holy, do they look like rattlesnakes? It was yeah. that one. Yeah. That one, I was out of my skin. I was jumping pretty far for that one too. <laughs> That's crazy, man. So when you're out there, like, you know, in all these spots, doing your form of hunting, we'll call it that. <laughs> but <laughs> do you go through, you know, periods of time like similar? I'm mean, assuming you you must, but where you're just kind of hitting dead ends, you're just not oh, yeah. finding stuff, and you're just like, do you start to get to like ripping your hair out? Where you're like, hey, there's like nothing turning up everywhere I'm going. You feel like defeated and stuff like that. Yeah, sometimes it's like that, where it's like. I'll get there and it's like, it's either I'm finding something like amazing right away and the whole day is just great. Or sometimes I get there and it's just like, I'm finding nothing. I'm finding nothing. Oh yeah. No, look at that. Nothing there. And then I'll like turn the corner and it's just like, boom, you know, it's right there. But I mean, there's definitely been times where I've gone out and I come back and you know, it's just like, well, I just, you know, burned. 3000 calories and 30 degree heat in the valley and I'm walking out of here empty handed. But you know, when that happens, it makes the next time just like that much more better because Mm -hmm. it's like, man, you know, I hit this dead end. I didn't find anything. This one was a bust. But then the next time you go out there, it's like, no, you know, I'm going to find something. Then you do find some and it's like two times as better. Yeah, no doubt. It just gets to be a, a rush for every time you do find something. So on that note, what is one of your, you know, findings that, you know, just left you kind of jaw dropped or just more than stoked that you, yeah. Probably, um, there's, there's a few that I found. Um, I have a juvenile Alberta sore tooth, shed tooth. That's like black and it's, it's just beautiful. It's perfect condition. Um, there's a, a uh, it's either Gorgosaur, Displediosaur hand claw that I found. So, you know, the two fingers. Um, so one of those claws. So that one's up there. But I think probably the best one is the Albertosaur maxilla I found back in, back in May. I found it. Um, and it was one of those days where it was just like right away, boom, boom, boom. I'm finding all this good stuff. And I'm like, man, how am I going to top this? And I come around this corner. And there's kind of like this like little flat spot on the hill like that sticks out like two feet. And I go and I look up there and I'm like, there's no way that this is an Albertosaurus maxilla, which is um, part of the skull. So it's the front right side of the maxilla. Um, And basically, it's like the upper jaw part where the teeth would come out. And then in front of that is the pre-maxilla and then that makes up the nose. So it's, it's a big section of the side of the skull. And, um, right away, you know, I see that rough texture, it's telltale sign that this is, um, Alberta sore skull. So I'm like, holy, you know, I'm in the right layer. This is amazing. Um, and I'm looking at it and years ago I went to a talk about 
scars, biting, and aggression in tyrannosaurs. And 50% of all skeletal elements of uh, tyrannosaur. So when I say like tyrannosaur, I mean like the encompassing all all the species of tyrannosaurus. So like Albertosaurus, Gorgosaurus, Tarbosaurus, Tyrannosaurus rex. Um, so when I say tyrannosaur, it's kind of just a broad term for one of the tyrannosaurs. Mm-hmm. Um, if I ever say Tyrannosaurus, then I'm referring to T-Rex. It's stupid, you know, naming conventions, but they're, once you get used to them, then they start to make sense. Um, but yeah, so in all 50% of Tyrannosaur skeletal elements, they have scars um, in the bone, healed bite wounds from other Tyrannosaurs. They would, uh, they would fight a lot, like cockfight a lot, kind of like modern day crocodiles or Komodo dragons do a lot. Um, hmm. So they would nip at each other and all this stuff. And they were mean. Like um, they have ones where the orbit is crushed. So the orbit is like the eye socket. And then they have another one where the lower left jaw is pulled out of the socket. Um, but on this one that I found, the maxilla, right away, I saw the distinctive scar. You can see like the upheaval in the bone. And it's like this whitish ridge. And then there was two scars on it, actually. And they were big scars, like these tyrannosaurs were mean, like they were getting at it with each other. Like they were rough. They were biting, you know, clawing. They, they were not nice to each other. Wow. That's so crazy. And so you're saying like you were turning up stuff kind of all day and then you'd come across it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, I was going along and uh, I was looking in a bit of the scholar formation. I'll, I'll explain the formations here in a minute. Um, so I was looking in the scholar formation and I found a nice uh, Thescalosaurid vertebrae. So Thescalosaurid was like uh, it was like a bipedal kind of uh, herbivorous kind of dinosaur. They're kind of rare. Mm-hmm. They're 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 neat, um, but they're kind of an unknown uh, species of dinosaur. Their fossils are kind of rare. Um, so I found that, and then I'm finding a uh, Champasaur. Uh, so Champasaur was like a crocodile. Um, it was more aquatic, and it's extinct now. It kind of looked like a gharial. If a gharial and a alligator gar like combined, you know, so a more oh, aquatic, funny. yeah, kind of a terrestrial alligator gar is a good way to kind of imagine it, which just kind of sounds like an alligator. But um, so I was finding their vertebrae and I was finding, you know, pieces of turtle shell. And then I go down into the Horseshoe Canyon formation and I'm finding a. Uh, uh, Lambiosaurine, so that's a type of hadrosaur. I'm finding uh, like the fingertip, so they have like hoof kind of type um, feet and stuff. So their toe tips and their fingertips, um, their fossils are very kind of kind of hoof like. They kind of look like a horse hoof without like the keratin sheath on it. Um, so I'm finding that stuff. You know, vertebrae, pretty good stuff. Oh, a little piece of tooth, and then yeah, boom. Albertosaur maxilla and I was like there is no way this is happening I couldn't believe it you know that's been one of my dreams my whole life is to find some sort of tyrannosaur skull element and to find that one was just crazy wow and so did that one end up like at the Tyrell or something like that or yep so um a lot of the stuff I find like shed teeth and some of the other stuff you know the Tyrell if if you were to give it to them, they would take it, but there's a relative uninterest in it. Like they already have millions of specimens, right? Like space wow. is a limited thing. So um, it's not that they would say no, but it's not like, it's not highest priority. But as soon as I found this, I was like, no, this is, this is something that I want the Tyro to have. So 
I let them know about it. And then we organized a, a date and we went and dug it up here in October. Um, it took a while. There's planning that has to go into it and there's other projects that go on. So we went in October and we dug it up. And as we were digging it up, um, so I was talking about earlier how you can find shed teeth. Mm-hmm. Well, you can also find rooted teeth where it still has the root. Like our teeth um, have the root on it. Like if you get a tooth pulled, you see the root. And it has like all, you know, those spiky projections. Yeah. Um, but like when you're uh, a kid stuff, when you shed teeth, uh, especially like your front teeth, you know, they're just kind of like, you know, flat, nothing really mm-hmm. to them. A lot of the root is kind of disintegrated. Um, but we found a rooted tooth from the maxilla and it was probably eight or nine inches long in the end with the whole root, perfect serrations on it. It has the wear pattern from feeding. Um, it's this beautiful, like brownish, amber, tan color. It just, and the enamel on it is just shining in the sun. It was so cool. Yeah. We just flipped the slab up and boom, it was right there. Wow. That's remarkable, man. That's so when you're talking about the, you know, them having a ton of certain stuff and only so much space. So at that point, is that something? And again, to go back to the legalities and stuff to confirm, like you would be able to hold and trust like yourself or no. (laughs) Um, kind of. Yes. Like ideally in a perfect world, if the Tyrell could collect everything, they would. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also just one of those things where it's like, okay, if we go out and we find a hadgesaur limb bone, depending on where it is, yeah, absolutely. You know, they will do their best to collect it, but certain things are of higher priority than others. Um, right. So like, you know, a Tyrannosaur maxilla, that one's going to be, you know, a bit higher priority because it has, you know, more scientific value. Um, they do have, you know, lots of room at the Tyrell and they could always expand, um, but there is only so much, right, that you can do. Um, and there's so much fossil, like if you were to go out there and pick up every single piece of bone you had, you would fill up a warehouse. You would fill up Costco, you know, the size of a Costco warehouse so quick, it would be unbelievable. That's so crazy to think like that. That is literally how much is like out there untouched that you can still just come across in this province. Oh, absolutely, man. It's, it's unbelievable how much there is. So man, it's like, I can't even think about how just misunderstood I was with, you know, the, the amount that is still and out there and untouched and unfound. And Oh yeah. Yeah. How much is the, of the history is still just like lying beneath the surface for us. When you yeah. were talking about uh, like all the different vertebrae and the toes and the claws and you know, how everything's made, like you're so educated on, um, the anatomy and understand well the anatomy the i don't know yep. skeletal structure is part yeah, of yeah anatomy, anatomy. Yeah, no, that's yeah right so like it's kind of a blend of two questions but you know like there's probably a great online community with resources as well i imagine um of like other paleontologists and things like that uh do you ever like, like how on earth did you get so educated on this stuff? Like, are you just looking at all different types of dinosaurs and anatomy that like, when you are finding something, you're just like, Oh, this is, you know, like you're saying like a bronchiosaurus, you know, whatever, or this is an yep. ankylosaurus spike from its back or whatever, you know, like, yeah. how are you so quick to um, kind of identify something? And is it like, sometimes is there like a communal, 
like do other paleontologists have to like say look at uh like a finding and, and like kind of confirm it like oh this is for yeah. sure a vertebrae from this dinosaur yep. or whatever this species like yep so there's definitely um to answer like the first question for you know like a lot of good online sources there actually really isn't a lot of good online sources for paleontology and that's part wow. of the thing that i'm trying to do with paleo alberta yeah um, i have the account it's the paleo alberta project and what my my end goal with this is what i want to do is i want to make that sort of database where if you need to find Tyrannosaurus skeletal anatomy or Hadrosaurus ceratopsian, you know, you can find it there. You can find phylogenies, scientific papers, information on laws, you know, the formations. That's that's my end goal. That's the that is the goal of Paleo Alberta. That is the Paleo Alberta project is, you know, to make something better than Wikipedia that there is for information. Um, but a lot of the stuff like um knowing how to identify stuff right away there's still a lot of things like i find it and i'm like i have no idea but even a lot of vertebrae um sometimes i'll find it it's like okay yeah that's an upper caudal vertebrae i can tell you right away or that's a lower dorsal or that's a sacral vertebrae or um this is a chevron or this is a metatarsal four out of all the ankle bones you know there's a bunch of ankle bones and you can distinguish between them based on certain features depending on the species um so it kind of comes back to that thing where I've had the privilege to grow up in the area and have access to places like the Tyrell, the Royal Alberta Museum, where if I've got a question, send them off an email, you know, and then they can help me uh, access certain scientific papers that have a lot of the answers um, that I need. I've got, you know, friends in the paleo community where we bounce ideas off of each other um, and we try and figure things out. Um, but there's definitely a process like, you go through and eliminate, okay, does this fossil exhibit this? Does it exhibit this? Like Tyrannosaur bone, if you were to just hand me a chunk of Tyrannosaur bone and a Hadrosaur bone, like a duckbill dinosaur bone, mm -hmm. um, I could tell you the difference where Tyrannosaur bone is usually denser. It's very rough looking, uh, hollow in the middle because um, Tyrannosaurs are theropods. So theropods like Velociraptor, um, T-Rex, that sort of stuff. They have very distinctive kind of bone structure and anatomy, whereas hadrosaurs and stuff, they're usually more porous, smoother bone. Um, it's, it's, it's a bunch of different things. I mean, even sometimes I'll like pick up a piece and I'm like, oh yeah, no, there's, there's no way to identify this. This is just too broken apart. There's no identifying features. This could be, you know, a mosasaur. This could be, uh, you know, pteranodon it's it's super super hard to distinguish some of the things but a lot of the common things like vertebrae and stuff i've got pretty accustomed to um like champasaur vertebrae those uh um kind of terrestrial alligator guards uh they have an hourglass shaped vertebrae where they have two like lines coming down from it their neural arches look a certain way um thesclosaurid vertebrae have like these sutures on the side of them that are really distinctive um, hadrosaur vertebrae are just kind of regular looking. They're kind of just round. And then in that, you can distinguish between what, where is that vertebrae in the body? Like we have, right. you know, our neck, um, our back, and then we kind of, we have like tail vertebrae, not really, but kind of, um, whereas dinosaurs, they have, um, caudal, which is the tail sacral, which is the vertebrae that fuse into the pelvis. 
Then you have dorsal, which are like the back. And then you have cervical, which are the vertebrae in the neck. So you, so first you have to figure, okay, is this hadrosaur? Is it champasaur? Is it tyrannosaur? And then from there you have to break it down. Okay. Is this dorsal? Is it cervical? Is it caudal? Um, so it's just kind of all those things where you find it. Okay. It's not tyrannosaur. Okay. It is hadrosaur. Okay. It has, um, it's wider than it is, um, tall. So it's probably a caudal vertebrae. And then you kind of just go off from there. Right. So you go through a mental checklist and then boom, boom, boom. Okay. It's this. Okay. Boom, boom, boom. Nope. That one doesn't work. Kind of stuff like that. Man, that is it it makes sense 100% but it is mind blowing to think about that like to think about that mental checklist you go through when kind of uncovering anything like i'm just personally probably going to be in the field and maybe come across something and send you a message and be like Eric, <laughs> yeah, what the no. heck am i looking at dude <laughs> oh no i get that all the time people and the worst is when people send you a message like hey i was out you know in the drumheller badlands and i found this fossil can you tell me what it is and it's a rock and it's like, no, I got to tell them that this is a rock. Um, but all the time, like this one guy sent me a picture. He's like, hey, I found this thing. Um, what do you think it is? And it was like one of the nicest Albertosaur teeth I've ever found. And I was like, oh, oh my goodness. Like you have the find right there, man. Crazy. Uh, so, yeah, no, I get that all the time on my account. And people are like, hey, what's this? Hey, what's that? Um, Dude, for sure. But funny. no, I, I love it. I love uh, identifying stuff like that. Because it's part of the reason why I love um, paleontology is there's there's controversy, there's people who disagree, there's mystery. It's it's a puzzle, and yeah, you know man. you're finding all these puzzle pieces, and the puzzle it's like trying to put a puzzle together, but you know every 20 minutes those pieces change because there's just such new information. So it's like you might be right about done figuring out this thing, and then oh. They found a new skeleton. Uh, yeah, no, your theory is just done. Start again. So, wow. yeah, no, I, I, I love it. I really do. It just, it keeps you just so, just so mentally active and it's a way to stay really physically healthy and um, in tune with nature. It just, to me, it checks all the boxes. Yeah, man. And it, it totally does. Cause you know, to relate to that again, even for myself, like, it's a very much uh, outsider perspective. Like when I came across your account for Paleo Alberta and was like, dude, we like, I am down to do an episode just cause yep. um, it also connects so much of that for me. Like I come from uh, just really enjoying um, all the different kind of theologies of where we came from and where we're going and how we got yep. here and our, our history that, you know, leaves us with more same thing questions yep. and answers a lot of times <laughs> yep, um, no and like, like you say that can get highly debatable whether it's you know scientific or religious or whatever you know that can go down to many different avenues oh yeah absolutely um, and like you say like i love that analogy that it's like a puzzle but all the pieces are constantly getting shuffled and it's like you're not even yeah building <laughs> the same puzzle all of a sudden <laughs> yep no doubt well i mean like you look at the people you know, um, who let's say started the Tyrell and they had all these theories and everything and, oh, you know, dinosaurs, it's like going back to the death pose Gorgosaur where originally, okay, you know, it was washed up like this. Well, new fossil found. Nope. That doesn't work. Oh, okay. Well, new theory. Nope. That theory doesn't work. It's, it's, it's awesome. But at the same time, you could spend your whole life researching something and then some Joe Schmo can come out and be like, sorry, dude, 
you know we just found a skeleton that disproves that wow that's like yeah it's so cool and yet so disheartening in a sense because everything could change so rapidly and so quickly all the time but, yep, absolutely well and it also ties together like when i was talking to you about like the hunt primitive stuff and primitive hunting like it's something i've gone down the rabbit hole of is like self bow building and um, yeah. like traditional archery and stuff like that and there's just so much yeah like you say like wonder and mystery and all this stuff that encompasses those time frames whether it was when humans were around or prior to like what yep. we are aware of when our existence started or whatever you know like yeah it's a period of time that is just completely filled with mystery and it's so cool to oh, yeah. talk to you about you know someone that's just so, like you're so highly educated on it and it's i've learned so much man just talking to you you know from the short conversation it's like yeah it's so cool to hear and one thing i wanted to really quick to add in because you kept mentioning uh the paleo alberta stuff so your yeah. instagram is at paleo alberta yeah. um and so awesome to see the stuff that you're doing and i didn't realize that that's the kind of end goal and concept that you're saying man because that is super cool that to have some form of like educational platform that's online where people can like you say go through each like subspecies and find different you know yeah find almost like yeah Yeah, because like i said you know i had these privileges um but so many times i meet people where they're like oh when i was a kid i wanted to do this so bad but you know, I just, I didn't know where to start. I didn't know where to look. And it's just like, that's so disheartening. You know, you have this childhood dream where you want to do this, but you, you don't know where to start because there is nowhere to start, you know? So I'm trying to take that privilege I had and try and distribute it to more people to give them a place where they can get a foot in the door where they can use it. And even people who already have that foot in the door, they can have a reliable database to fall back onto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like, it's cool to hear you say that because it surprises me that that hasn't been much like a thing yet, you know, when I I totally just assumed that there would be this like vast online community and all the paleontologists would be like talking to each other, sharing photos, being like, what's this, what's that, this is cool, this is from here, yada, yada. There's definitely a lot of like um, groups of like... um, Un, like non-professional uh, paleontologists and stuff, which is good. I mean, like, you know, I fall in that category with a lot of things that I do. And, you know, that their communication and stuff, a lot of times is better than the professionals' communications. A lot mm-hmm. of times professionals, you know, they're in, in a way you're collaborating, but you're also trying to be like, well, you know, I, I want my theories to be right. I want my stuff to be right. I don't want to tell you <laughs> my amazing discoveries. So, you know, sometimes when they're communicating, it's a lot more banter than progressive talk, um, for sure. Um, yeah, and then, oh, yeah, one thing I was going to touch on that I forgot to bring up before because we were talking about the the arrowheads and the laws for them. So the archaeology laws work differently than the paleontology laws. So okay. for stuff like arrowheads and that sort of stuff, um, a lot of that, it is just outright illegal uh, even if it's surface collected to own, that mm-hmm. stuff is always best um, to report, especially Royal Alberta Museum's really good. They do a really good job. Um, even a lot of like uh, bison sort of stuff um, that's more recent because you start tying in things like culture and stuff like that. Um, it starts to become a bigger issue and they don't want that to be 
benefited upon, which is good. I think it is absolutely good that, you know, there's ways to protect those cultures and that we can learn from it when we're not losing that, just like the fossils, right? You don't want just some Joe Schmo. Let's say they found the Alberta store maxilla before I did, dug it up and they just sold it. You've now lost it forever, whether it's from, uh, you know, science or culture, you know, you've lost it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just in somebody's house as like an art piece, you know, that's literally <laughs> yeah. serving no form of research or understanding of human yeah. progression at all. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Like, yeah. would I absolutely love, you know, to have a wall of arrowheads and all this stuff? Like, absolutely. Yeah. That stuff is so cool. But, you know, I would rather see that stuff be in a museum where more people can enjoy it, where the value of it can be uh, fully used. Yeah, and truly appreciated, right? Yeah, that's cool. I like that. Even just that way of looking at it, you know, um, that's a really like, in a lack of better words, like a mature perspective towards like fossil finding, you know, instead of just like having it for your own at home collection to show people how cool the stuff you find is. It's yeah. like, yeah, it's in a place that mm-hmm. um, can truly be appreciated uh, oh, by yeah. the public for years and years and years to come, right? Yep. No, and I, I mean, hey, I have my collection of fossils on my shelf that when people come, I'm like, yo, look at these fossils I found. But definitely those really important fossils that I find, those ones with a lot of scientific value, I'm like, you know, there's no point in me having it here on my shelf and, you know, explaining it to people when it can be shown to the world and it could be used in, you know, maybe some groundbreaking science. It could be used for, you know, one of those new theories, those new studies. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, to kind of go back to I wanted to retouch on to you were talking about uh oh what the heck the I can't think of the word now my brain is doing this like crazy sponge of all the different terminology and everything <laughs> but uh talk about the formations yes thank you the formation okay yeah so um along the Red Deer River and what I spend most of my time in so the the layer I've probably spent the most time in is the Horseshoe Canyon Formation, which is, you know, around um, 70 million years ago. And in the Horseshoe Canyon Formation, you find stuff like Albertosaurus um, and Monosaurus, that sort of stuff. Uh, Champosaurus, Crocodile Turtle, um, a few different uh, – you can find Pachyrhinosaurus, which is a type of Ceratopsian. So like the Albertosaur maxilla I found in there. Um, but starting from like the top down in the formations I spend the most time in, you have the Pascapu formation at the top. So that's like right after the dinosaur mass extinction and kind of goes like, like during the extinction and right after. So you start seeing like the rise of mammals and stuff like that. And then you see, you know, all of a sudden you see all these dinosaur fossils and then just boom, you get this coal, this coal boundary. I believe it's called the the KT or the KPG boundary um, that shows you when that meteor hit and all the things on, you know, the earth started to go haywire and you see this distinctive layer um, that separates the extinction of dinosaurs and then to the rise of mammals. So then, yes, that's the Pascapu formation. And then under that you have the scholard formation. And I love looking in the scholar formation because in the scholar formation, that's where you find stuff like T-Rex, Triceratops, Ankylosaurus, you know, these, these really cool dinosaurs. Like in Alberta, they found two T-Rexes. Um, so I, I've spent some good time, you know, in the scholar formation. I would just love 
to find a T-Rex tooth, you know, maybe even part of a skeleton, that would be crazy. Um, yeah. But the thing with the skull formation is it's not that big. The Horseshoe Canyon formation is huge and there's so much surface area exposure. It's wild. But the Scholar Formation, there is still a lot. But compared to the Horseshoe Canyon Formation, there's so much less. Um, so, yeah, you have Pascapu, Scholard, Horseshoe Canyon Formation. And then below that, you have the Bear Paw Sea Formation. Um, and then below the Bear Paw Sea Formation, you get into the Dinosaur Park Formation. And that's, like I said, where, you know, the densest fossils I've ever seen. Um and then, or a densest amount of fossils I've ever seen. And in the Dinosaur Park formation, um, the weather was a lot warmer. So you start finding more turtles, more crocodiles, all this stuff, which is crazy to think about, you know, that millions of years ago, we had crocodiles, you know, living in Alberta. Um, and then uh, below the Dinosaur Park formation, then you have the Old Man formation. Uh, which has it's it has a lot of really cool dinosaur stuff as well um there's lots of good stuff in all those layers uh but yeah it's kind of as you go south you start to see more uh of these layers it's not like okay i'm gonna go to this spot um along the red deer river and i'm gonna see all of these layers as you move more south you start to see more of these layers so like the scholard formation doesn't even reach drum heller um it would be too high up and that's all eroded away so Drumheller is pretty much all just Horseshoe Canyon formation. And then as you start to go southeast of Drumheller, you start to see the Bear Paw Sea formation take over. And then as you get to Dinosaur Adventure Park, you see the Dinosaur Park formation take over. And then as you go south from that, you see the Old Man formation take over. So it's not like it's all just in one area. It is spread out and it just, it like, it's like a very fine slant as you go south, where you just see a little bit less of the top layer as you go more south. That's super crazy. So to kind of put this into the mental picture that's happening in my head, like you could almost look at Alberta and map it within kind of different yep. sections of, that would classify as different layers. Yep, um, yep. But there's lots of those maps um, that are okay. done that, yeah, you can find them where it shows you all those different layers. Um, and then like there's different ones up North and it kind of starts to go a little haywire where you get the, some Jurassic stuff. And then in the Rocky mountains, cause Rocky mountains are old and they've been upheaved for a long time. So when I, when I'm talking about dinosaur fossils, we're talking, you know, 70 million years old around there. When I'm talking about, you know, fossils in the Rocky mountains and stuff, we're talking um, like 200 million years old, if not older. So it's crazy. Like we're talking old, old back to the Cambrian explosion um, where this stuff is just life looked so different back then. It was crazy. Wow. It's just like literally finding these things is like touching a piece of the past or like looking into a window of like an insane time frame. In yep, history. absolutely. That's so incredible to think about, man. And so when I'm thinking about this map, so when you're talking about the layers and I, I and just to kind of clarify it, I'm pretty sure I got it all right, but the layers change based on, you know, the uh, topography of the province, but based in the topography of the province, you're yeah. also getting like legitimately like the layers. So uh, as you go through the surface layers, you're going back in time and at different yeah. areas, there's more exposure of, um, 
older time periods based on, like you say, the geographical situation, like whether it's the mountains or the hoodoos yep. or, or whatever, right? Yeah, um, pretty much. Yeah, that's okay, pretty cool. much it. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of clarify in my head when, because like that's the picture that I was painting anyway is like, yeah, different layers being legitimate layers, but then how throughout the province, like you said, oh, like yeah. you, you, there's nowhere else in really the world that you're having access to almost all the different layers and all the different time periods to be digging up or not digging up, but seeing surface like all different. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, yeah. we're very, very fortunate for how much it's like just a finely woven tapestry with all this different stuff where, you know, in one square, we have this age period. And then in this square, we have six age periods. And then, you know, this one is completely different. So it's just this perfect, perfect mesh of all these different ages of all these different fossils in one that we are just so fortunate to have access to. Yeah, no kidding. And I, and I feel like <laughs> for the same thing, lack of better words, like I've lived under a rock. <laughs> <laughs> this whole time <laughs> like potentially no pun intended to that or whatever but well yeah hey it's, man it's like i said it's one of those things where it's like unless you're out there like i can sit here and ex- explain it all when unless you're out there and you see it firsthand it's mm-hmm. so hard to comprehend it all like i yeah. even you know i've spent you know hundreds of hours out there and i try and sit here and think about it all and it's it's hard for me to comprehend how much there is mm-hmm and yeah, like, so are you, and I mean, this is just spurring up another random question for myself. Uh, so is there like a pack, like a little kit that you're taking out with you that is like a specific set of tools, like that you're taking with you when you're looking for things or finding something like, are you brushing things off? Like everybody sees these, like, yeah. you know, paleological or archeological like toolkits and stuff. Like, mm-hmm. is that something that you've got, like you're carrying around with you or what's. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I have a nice Coleman hiking backpack and it's usually, you know, you have the basics. I have my geology hammer. I've usually got, you know, some brushes. I have stuff to take notes, GPS, um, all that sort of stuff. Obviously water. I never, if anyone's (laughs) ever going to go out into the Badlands and do like a serious, like if you're just going to go walk around Horseshoe Canyon a bit and just kind of go in the loop, you know, you're fine to just go down there with a water bottle. But if you're going out into the Badlands like I am, where you're spending the whole day in, you know, 30 plus degree heat in the valley, and it feels like a microwave in the valley. Um, I never go in there now with less than four liters of water. And I think my record, um, when I went out with my buddy Dawson one time, we were out and our record was like four and a half, five liters we drank in one day. And he, had, uh, he had like a fitness uh, watch on. And we burned like three, 4,000 calories. It was crazy. Wow. Just you're hiking up and down these hills. The sun's beating on you. You're just drinking water and you're chewing on pepperoni sticks, you know, like <laughs> you're, you're out there and it's like, I'm here, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not halfing it here. I'm doing the whole shebang. So yeah, you got to put sure. the work in. Um, but yeah, those are usually things I usually carry like, um, uh, you kind of get like those, those like white kind of pill containers that people use for pills to carry around, like little travel pill containers. Mm-hmm. Um, those are awesome. I have like probably 50 of them sitting around. And then when I'm out there and I find something that's smaller, wrap it in a bit of toilet paper, put it in that capsule, then it's safe in my backpack. It's not banging around. Um, usually I carry aluminum foil. Aluminum foil is a really good one to wrap stuff with uh, just to keep it safer. 
Um, there's a bunch of things, first aid kit, you know, kind of the mm-hmm. usual stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But paleo specific stuff, it's usually the rock hammer. I've got like a little knife, um, that sort of stuff, the stuff to contain it. Um, yeah, that sort of stuff pretty much. Yeah, that's super, super cool, man. So what's the like winter look like for you yourself? Like, okay, so things slow down. Um, you're not doing as many excursions and finding stuff as much. Are you just starting to maybe plan like next summer more so like you start to plan like okay as soon as the snow is melted like is that when you're doing a lot of your like maybe e-scouting on iHunter or things like that yeah absolutely like I mean I'm already planning a trip for going down down south by some places um right along the United States border there's a couple spots I'm looking at um near Saskatchewan bunch of spots missing hat um but winter usually Um, I'm in school, so it's nice school runs through winter. So as I'm chasing my degree, I can do that in winter and then I get my four months or whatever of summer. So then it's kind of nice. I can go out and I can spend my four months, um, volunteering with the Tyrell or the Royal Alberta Museum right now, or just going out on my own. Um, but yeah, winter is definitely a slower time. Usually I'm just working on, uh, like I said, school illustrations for my Paleo Alberta project. Um, recording the stuff documenting the stuff i have and then making content for the paleo alberta account yeah that's super cool man and uh yeah what a great way to kind of get through the winter to plan and get excited for the summer and everything else and yeah that's just you've opened my eyes to a world that same thing is like right under our feet here and mm-hmm. you know sure growing up here you hear about it like everybody talks about it you know everyone at some point has gone through Drumheller has gone through tyrell or gone through some of these museums you know it's like yep it's a destination thing that whether you live here or have come through here like mm-hmm. you've learned about or touched on but yeah to be here my whole life and really not even scratch the surface on it how incredible that is it's like yeah that's all i kind of want oh, <laughs> yeah. like i said like when i'm hunting or when i'm like you know it's just thinking about this kind of stuff in in theology or things with um, primitive hunting and stuff like that too. It's just something that's really piquing my interest lately and everything too. And it's just, Oh, that's sweet. Well, even like people don't realize you don't have to go far for this stuff. Like even in Edmonton, uh, they Mm -hmm. find fossils in Edmonton along the river. Um, They have the Danic bone bed there Um, by Grand Prairie. There's a bone bed up there that they find all sorts of stuff. Um, in Calgary, they have all sorts of stuff that they find around there too, uh, along the rivers, Lethbridge, along the St. Mary river. There's all sorts of stuff like this stuff is everywhere. It's unbelievable. Wow. That's definitely made me want to, yeah, kind of get out and check things out a lot more. I know like, you know, as a family, especially with my son, like a three-year-old son, and we've been wanting to make a trip down to Drumheller for sure. And I think this summer will be it for sure. We we're going to go to it last summer, but we want to just go when uh, he's going to remember everything more. And like, really, oh, yeah, like it's actually pretty timely right now. Cause he's like super stoked on uh, everything dinosaur right now. So it's, yep. it's very timely to have this conversation. And then all of a sudden come out like that cool dad that thinks he knows what he's talking about. Oh, yeah, him. there you go. Now you're, you're able to tell him everything. Yeah. Yeah, thanks you for that uphand advantage. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. Pick up a vertebrae. Just start telling them, you know, oh, I had your sore dorsal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, man. <laughs> but uh, Eric, it's honestly, man, it's been a pleasure talking to you and having you on the podcast. I appreciate everything that you shared. You've totally 
blown my mind over the course of the whole conversation here. And I think I've kind of gone through most of the stuff. There's, like I said, this is just when you said the Pandora's box thing. It's, yep. That's a great way of describing it because I have a million other things kind of running through my head. And, you know, 100% we're going to have to keep in touch. I'm 100% going to be following and seeing all, like, looking out for all of the things that come up in your future and findings and stuff like that as well. And yeah, um, expect some messages from myself or maybe oh, yeah, some no, listeners absolutely. that are like, dude, what's this? You probably get oh, one yeah. more, dude, what's this stuff in the next well, yeah, no, <laughs> coming month. You have any questions, feel free. Feel yeah. free to ask him. I mean, hey, same for your stuff. Like the podcast is really cool. And like I said, it's so it's so cool to have like how I have the Paleo Alberta stuff, you know, and I'm trying to share the stuff that I find and you're trying to share all these stories from all these people that would normally be lost without it. It's so cool to have that, you know, um, and even all the hunting stuff. Like I thought I was pretty, you know, in tune with it. And I've been listening to some of your podcasts and I'm like, man, there's so much that I just had no idea. So it's, it's really cool. No, absolutely. I love the stuff and it's awesome. And I really appreciate you having me on. It's really cool. Oh, I appreciate all that, Eric. And thank you. And it's definitely, yeah, kind of mutual for sure that way that like, you know, I was stoked to have you on and you've taught me way more than I ever thought I knew about, you know, the province that we live in and even through hunting the land that I thought, you know, I spend time in and everything like that. Mm -hmm. It's just, regardless, I'll just look at things a different way after this conversation. It's super cool. And it's a big part of the reason I love doing the podcast is not only giving people the opportunity to share who they are and what they do and why they love doing it and some of the most unforgettable stuff in their life. But, you know, to uncover some of the same things like the mysteries of the province or hunting or fishing or things that you're doing through the paleo stuff, it's, it's like you said, same thing. Like I learned so much, like, I feel like that's my, um, like when you're talking about like the privilege of the stuff that you've learned through uh, your upbringing, everything, like I get, people don't realize the privilege of running the podcast where I just, all these people have all these crazy insightful, you know, hunting tactics or little tips and tricks and things like yeah. that, or, you know, talking to you about uh, other stuff in the province. It's just totally reshaping the way I look at Alberta myself. And, you know, I, I started the podcast as a thing of like, you know what, we've got a world-class province that doesn't get a lot. I mean, people know about it. A lot of people mm -hmm. hear Alberta, they know what Alberta's famous for, but yeah, um, you know, it's just, I spent a lot of time traveling and stuff. And then, you know, I came back to Alberta and was like, what, why did I leave? Like, there's so yep. much here that, you know, it's, it's remarkable, right? Well, so, absolutely. It's like I yeah. said, you know, you can, you can listen to it. You can be told about it all you want, but unless you're here to see it and mm -hmm. to actually experience it, you never know how just beautifully rich this province is. <laughs> That's such a, such a great note to kind of, close out and end everything on man and yeah i appreciate all your time and sharing everything that you've divulged and i can just hear the passion in your voice for everything that you do and yeah it just intrigues me so much i'm just so stoked to get out there and yeah look at the awesome. world in a different lens again well awesome well thanks again i appreciate it all a lot and yeah no i really appreciate the time so no it's been awesome no absolutely eric it's uh definitely mutual and uh well, like i said we'll have to keep in touch you'll expect to be <laughs> i'll be sending you that hey is this a rock message for yeah. probably years to come so yeah <laughs> but, uh, 
Awesome, yeah, thanks dude. so much, man. Well, you have a great rest of your night there. And uh, yeah, we will keep in touch. And I'd love to have you on again, especially if you get into any other crazy findings you ever want to share, man. And any other education, like I got another whole amalgamation of questions here for you. So I'd love to have you on again. Awesome. All right. Well, then, yeah, we'll leave her till next time. Sounds good, man. Well, you have a good one and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, you too, dude. Thanks. Bye. Bye.